Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Paul Krivacek, who has just published a history of what amounts to around half of human history, the two and a half millennia when Mesopotamia was a world's preeminent civilization. The book is entitled Babylon, which may summon images of luxury and decadence, but as Paul makes clear, we have the Mesopotamians to thank for many things, from the wheel to writing and the first cities. Before the interview, he told me that his fascination with the Babylonians dates back to his teenage years, when his imagination was fired by being given a book about them, and later stimulated by travels in the region. I started by asking him to explain where exactly we were talking about. Mesopotamia, topographically, is that bit which lies between the connected end of that great wedge, which is the Arabian Peninsula, and the mountains of Iran. As the Arabian Peninsula uh, uh, travels north, it joins the uh, landmass of Iran, there's sea in between, and in that sort of crack between the desert of Arabia and the mountains of Iran, this is the, uh, it's actually a natural earth fault line there, mm. there's actual movement there. Uh, this is the valley of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that runs down from the mountains in Turkey in the north all the way down into uh, what we traditionally call the Persian Gulf. Mm. And this is new land. This is, this, d- during the Ice Age, it was all land, but then when the Ice Age was over, it was all flooded. So what we call the Persian or Arabian Gulf was far, far, far to the north mm. of where it is now, maybe even as far as north as ba- uh, Baghdad. Mm. And then these great rivers slowly bring down loads and loads and loads of silt and fills up the river valley, pushing the Gulf further, further southwards. So there's this new land, but there's no rain. So it's not fertile. The soil itself is potentially fertile, but nothing grows there because it's, there's no rain. So at some point before 4000 BC, maybe even before 5000 BC, at some point, people started coming in from the surrounding areas where they were engaged in Neolithic, that is, New Stone Age, subsistence agriculture, mm. agriculture having been discovered or invented or whatever, while shortly after the retreating of the ice, mm. after, say, 10,000 BC. So now we're about 5,000, 4,000 BC, and people are moving in. But these are very, very special people, because unlike everybody else in the world who adapts their way of life to fit in with their natural environment, these people seem to be determined to become farmers in a rainless area. In other words, they they have decided that we're not going to change to suit our environment, we're going to change our environment to suit ourselves. Mm. And that is a huge jump, because that is one of the inspirers of civilization, Mm. which has continued ever since. That's the way we do it in our day, too. If we don't like the environment, we change the natural environment. Mm. And that is a kind of mark of all these extraordinary changes they came out. There are times in the world when, not all the time certainly, but the times are common enough when anything new is all the rage, when, when, when novelty is king, when uh, creativity, innovation, imagination are the most highly prized of all qualities. And mm. uh, we're living in a time like that now, probably have been what, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution 200, 250 years ago. Well, For many Mesopotamians, 
their experience of life was like that too. Not, of course, everywhere and not uh, all the time and not among, above, uh, among everybody, but in enough places at enough times I mean, in, among enough people for them to have come up with most, you can't say all, but most of the basic ideas, beliefs, principles, structures, and systems which we've been basing civilization on ever since that time. So from about, three, with the invention of writing, 3100 BC, down to the conquest of uh, uh, Babylon by Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. Mm. That two and a half thousand year period, which is the period about which my book is, is about the laying down of all of these basic patterns of civilization that, that we have lived with ever since. And it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I won't give you a long list because it would be, it would tire me to, to, to list out and bore you to listen to. But, you know, just a, a few tiny examples from here and there. Mm. In engineering, for example, the, the, the wheel, first for the potter and then for the haulier the wind vane, and then somebody has the neat idea, hey, if we put a wind vane on a boat, we've got a sailing boat, or in, well, of course, in culture, uh, Mesopotamia's great grip to the word, to the world, the idea of writing, not the specific form, mm. but the idea that you can encode speech in a hard copy, fantastic idea. Mm. Of course, from that spreads literature in every one of its rich varieties. It, it spreads to codify law, it spreads to uh, textbooks, astronomy, medical, mathematical, I mentioned, spreads out there. In, in, in politics, they try out everything from, from primitive democracy to uh, priestly theocracy all the way to, to kingship, to the idea of the nation state, to the idea of the great territorial empire. In economics, well, it, in economics, I mentioned in the book, it's, it's almost like they're doing a dress rehearsal, a dry run mm. for almost every single mm. one of the economic systems mm. that been, we've been reusing one way or another ever since. You want to find sort of their version of proto-Soviet central economic planning a la Brezhnev, you can find it. You want to find their version of... Uh, what uh, proto-liberal economic privatization a la Margaret Thatcher, you can find it. Now, Paul, you um, talk about these, these innovations. One of the most significant ones, I suppose, is the, the evolution of what we think of as the city. Um, yes. you know, I mean, it's hard to think of a time when, when cities were not really one of the major ways of organizing society, but the first city occurred in Mesopotamia. What, 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 yeah. was, what was it like? Tell, tell, what, do, what do we know about what it was like? The very first urban foundation precedes Mesopotamia for ages. There were urban foundations in Turkey, in Gözakoy, in Jericho, of course, which is very, very, very ancient. There are already urban foundations, so towns. Now, I suppose the real question is, what's the difference between towns, which already existed, and cities? And I think the difference is very important. Towns exist to serve the countryside around them. They are entrepôts. They are places for markets. The revolution with the city, it goes the other way around. The city is not there to service the countryside. The countryside around it is there to serve the city, which has its own ambitions, its own purposes, and its own mechanisms. 
I liken the city in my book to a great machine. Here we have people living together who for the first time in history had very specialized roles, not in terms of the way they earn their living. They've always been carpenters and silversmiths and, and other artisans in the countryside doing that sort of thing. No, each cog, each human cog in the urban machine becomes like, oh, I don't know, thinking back on that people I've described, like the, the estate manager of a particular temple. There's uh, somebody else somewhere who's the, uh, the third eunuch on the commander's chariot. You know, people take up these very specialized jobs, so they become part of an intricate, highly complex human machine, which is what the city is. The town in the country was never like that. Towns were built by farmers to service farmers' needs. Cities were built by a new breed, the citizen, who was there to serve the city and to become part of it. Now, you mentioned already the, the development of writing. Tell, tell yes. me a little bit about what it was originally for and then how that develops over the course of the book. Originally, writing seems to have been no more than a kind of aid memoir. There, there is no consensus about how long it took to develop. There are two two different views. Everybody's pretty sure that it developed in this way. Once wealth started to build up and you needed to keep a record of what you had. So, for example, uh, a shepherd or, or rather a sheep rearer may have many, many animals and he need, and particularly when he sells them uh, or passes them on to somebody else in the course of the complicated life that stock animals lead, mm. he needs to keep a record. So what they did, they took little balls of clay, clay of course is ubiquitous from the silt of in, in, in southern Mesopotamia, they made little balls and they put a mark on the ball to represent whether it was, well in the case of the sheep, it was a little square, just a cross, they, mm. so we've got a little ball, the size of a marble, and, uh, and uh, a groove north to south and a groove east to west, and that re represents one sheep. So when you have a collection of, say, 25 sheep, you are uh, selling to somebody else. So you'll make 25 of the little, these little balls marked with a cross, each one for a sheep. You'll pop it in a clay envelope. You'll put your, some kind of sign on the front of the clay envelope to say it's yours, and that becomes your document of transaction. When you want to inspect that document of transaction, it's a bit inco inconvenient. You have to break open the clay envelope every time and count the balls and then make a new clay envelope to put them back in. So somebody at the bright idea, tell you, bright idea, tell you what, instead of breaking open the clay, we'll do the thing double. We'll have the clay balls inside, but on the front of the clay envelope, will make a mark around a, a circle with a cross in the middle of it, which read each one represents one of those balls. So inside the envelope, there's 25 balls. On the front of the envelope, there are marks uh, which look like circles with crosses inside, 25 of them, saying inside this envelope, there are 25 balls. At some point, somebody says, what are we doing? Well, how are we putting the, 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 the envelope shows perfectly clearly what we're counting, why are we bothering to put these balls inside? So they forget about the actual physical marbles with the crosses on them, and they just start producing the clay envelope mm. with uh, marks with, with signs for 25 balls on. And that's the beginning. That, those 25, that says 25 sheep. 
Mm. Now, riding 25 street is just about it. Suppose you want to sell 150 street. You don't just sit there for 10 hours marking mm. boards and crosses mm. in them on the front. So you need to mm. contract that. So you need to find a way of, of reducing the number. So basically, that's how it starts. So it represents sheep. And then somebody has the even better idea. Okay, we can represent sheep. And now, supposing we want to represent the number of sheep we've taken to the temple for sacrifice. We've just taken 30 sheep, sold them to the priest to be sacrificed over the next month. So they want to put a mark on the thing which says temple. So what do they do? They choose a sign which looks like the, the standard, ground, the standard uh, ground plan of a temple. And so it goes. So they, they've now got a way of writing 25 sheep temple. It doesn't say any more than that. There are symbols of 25 sheep and the symbol of a temple. Mm -hmm. Ah, but which temple? Well, let's say it's the temple of the goddess Inanna. So they think to themselves, well, how on earth can we put a mark which says the goddess Inanna? So, well, what if the goddesses make us think of? Star in the sky, perhaps. That's where the gods are, after all, up there. Mm -hmm. And the goddess Inanna is associated with the planet Venus, which they thought was a star. So we will make a little star-shaped sign which says God or Goddess, and followed by what represents Inanna. Inanna was known all over. She, she's, by the way, the goddess who later be, became Ishtar, and then by Greek and Roman times became uh, Astarte and Venus. Mm. Same, she's the, the great goddess. Mm. Okay, so we've got a star which says Goddess. What about her? Well, it happens that her temples were characterized by a particular shape of doorway, two vertical posts with loops at the top through which hung a bar, off which hung a reed matting door. So you could roll the uh, bar and that would roll up the door so that you could get, go in and out of her temple. Everybody knew that that was the sign of Inanna's temple. And so they made a little mark on this clay envelope star saying a god or goddess and then a mark showing these two vertical um, uh, doorposts with loops at the top which are recognized as inanna. So now they've got, on this envelope you've got marks that say 25 sheep temple inanna and there you have writing mm. you have the very first aid memoir but it's no more than an aid memoir it's nothing to do with language at no. this stage so it's quite a big step from that aid memoir to the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh. Well, it's about a thousand years, yes. Mm. But just as, let me remind you, in our own day, in the 1896 census, Hermann Hollerith produced the very first mechanical tabulating machine, which has led in uh, 104 years to the beginnings of what we can see is going to be an entirely new way of encoding information and knowledge. It's not got that far yet, 25 sheep, temple, Inanna, to the Epic of Gilgamesh in less than a thousand years, actually, or let's say about a thousand years, mm. then where could we go with this new digital way of encoding information in the next thousand years? I hope that by telling the story of this two and a half thousand years from beginning to end, not of the politics or who killed who or one, who won which battle and which state conquered which state, although that, of course, has to come into it. But mostly my attempt has been at a narrative history of the way civilization developed. Mm. And I think if I've done my job right, who knows, then people coming to the end of it will have enough of an impression 
of the shape of the way civilizations rise from nothing, flourish, and then fade away again. And just with my very few pointers to uh, take a look at our own history and our own times, I think they'll get the message. Mm. Let's go back to old Babylon, because you, you call the city, or you refer to the city of Babylon yeah. as the most famous, most notorious, most splendid, most excoriated, <laughs> most admired, most vilified city in antiquity. Yes. So, so I suppose the question is, was that reputation justified? No. It just came to represent everything that uh, anybody wanted to represent. And uh, let's put it this way. It was the place where in, in around 1800 BC, it all came together. All that history of Mesopotamia came together in its first huge flourishing. And because of um, the, the vagaries of geological and weather history, unfortunately, that moment in Babylon's long and great history has been lost to us because the water table has risen so high that although the monuments brought back to Europe from Babylon are spectacular, those which sit in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, if anybody has access to Berlin and mm. is interested in the subject, they really must go there, walk down the processional way which Nebuchadnezzar walked down, go through the ceremonial Ishtar Gate, through which the priests uh, marched and chanted on high days and holidays. It's the most fantastic experience. Mm. But that comes from so late in the uh, city's history that, as I say in the book, it's hardly much earlier than the buildings on the Parthenon in Athens, uh, on the Acropolis in Athens. So we don't have records. We don't have an archaeological record mm. of what Babylon was in its heyday. But it was from its founding under the ancestors of, um, of Hammurabi, the famous lawgiver, the, the guy who wrote the famous eye for an eye tooth for a tooth law code, around, as I say, 1800-ish BCE. That's when everything in southern Mesopotamia for the first time comes together and shows what a spectacular and glorious thing a world city can be. And we must call Babylon in that sense the greatest world city because everybody who was familiar with the international environment in those days, and although so many people were peasants living on the land who didn't even know anything about the, uh, the village next door, urbanites and anybody who knew anything about what was going on in the world, oh, as far as, well, certainly Greece, the pre-Helladic Greece, the, mm. the Mycenaeans and so on, mm. already knew about Babylon, points further west knew about Babylon, all Anatolia knew about Babylon, it was known in Arabia, it was known further east in, uh, in northern India. It, it was already famous in its own day mm. as the greatest world city. It would be taken over eventually simply in terms of fame by the Assyrian cities, mm. um, in particular Nineveh, which also had... But Nineveh was always was no, well known as the seat of, a great, of the greatest power of the age in the way that Washington, D.C. is known as the seat of government of the greatest power of our age, mm. whereas Babylon was the New York. <laughs> Paul Krivacek. Babylon, Mesopotamia and the Birth of Civilization is available now in hardback. You can find out more details on the website at blackwell.co.uk.
You'll also find an archive of over a hundred author interviews there. I'll be back soon with another podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.